chapter 4. We're going to be, begin reading in verse 7, and we will read through verse 10. We're calling this series, The Calling of God. And what we're aiming to emphasize again and again in our study, in our in-depth study, really, of this passage, is that God's calling for our lives requires that we be all in, that we, that we surrender everything, that we give all that we have to him in service of his will, that we may be used of God as the people of God in doing kingdom work. And we'll see that even, I think, beautifully in this passage that we study this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, reading through verse 10, we see this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. By the way, that should sound familiar because we just read from that passage in Psalm 68 in our time celebrating the Lord's Supper. And you probably have a footnote referencing that in some way in your Bible. But the, the, the connection there, we'll, we'll speak more about it in, in a moment, but the connection there points us to the victorious work of Jesus. And so we have been given this measure of Christ's gift as it was promised in the word that he would, that he would do this is what it's meaning to to show us. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one also who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. As we get into this text this morning, I, I want us to work, in, to some degree, I want us to work in reverse, because I want us to look first at verses 9 and 10 and understand how verses 9 and 10 inform everything else that's happening here around it in the verses preceding and following it. Because verses 9 and 10 point us to the greater context of the book of Ephesians, not just in verse, excuse me, in chapter 4, but what's happening in the book as a whole. And even as we think about that, it points us to what's happening in the, the life of the church at Ephesus. And, and that's the connection that I want us to see this morning so that we can understand how all of these pieces fit together and what God is, is wanting to speak and, and say to us this morning. Verse 9, it's speaking of the reference to Psalm 68 in saying he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. And so it's asking the question there, if we're talking about God ascending, well, in order for God to ascend, he had to have descended. Well, God, think of God's position. If you were to say, well, where is God? Where is the dwelling place of God? Where is the, where, where is the place where God is now? The answer would be heaven, right? We would, think, we would say heaven. And we think of heaven as being a place that is on high. Now, the, the truth of the matter is, uh, it, it, heaven is not a material, it's, it's not on high in a material sense, as if, if we were to jump in the, a rocket ship and, and shoot ourselves up into the sky, that somehow we would, we would keep going and keep going and keep going, and then eventually we would get so high that we even went beyond space itself, and there we would find heaven. That was actually what I thought when I was younger because of all the talk about heaven being on high, right? All you had to do was go high enough and far enough, and eventually you would get to heaven, it's not a reference to a, a material 
being, a material place, but rather it's, it's a reference to the place that God is above the things of this earth. In the Old Testament, often there was a metaphor that was used both for the, the place of God and even the victorious work of God that was referenced as Mount Zion. Now, Zion was a, a literal place. Zion was an actual physical place. It's the mountain where Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is located. But it also became symbolic of so much more in the life of the children of Israel and particularly in the writing of the Old Testament Scripture. It becomes symbolic of the victorious work of God and the fact that he has conquered his enemies, that he has done what he promised that he would do, and he stands as the victorious, powerful God over all things. And that's exactly what the the point of this scripture is in showing us that Christ descended into the earth and then in understanding that he ascended to heaven, it's pointing us to the physical work of Christ. I mean, the, the actual physical, material, incarnate Christ and his conquering work for us on the cross. See, in the church at Ephesus, There was this growing influence in the time that the New Testament works were being written. There was this growing philosophical influence that later, actually in many decades later than the time that this would have been written, developed into a full-blown school of thought or even a, a religion that we would now refer to these days as Gnosticism. Gnosticism can most simply be described as a religion that, that places great emphasis on a spiritual reality and, and de-emphasizes everything that is physical. And so oftentimes in Gnostic thought, there were two, two poles of, of, uh, of how they would apply this, two, if you will, extremes, polarizing views. Either it, it leaned toward a heavy asceticism, and that means that they would, they would deny this physical body. That they, the goal was to somehow punish or bring into submission this physical body so that in doing that, you might transcend the physical into a spiritual reality. The other extreme was one of, we might refer to as hedonism. It was just, it doesn't matter what you do in this physical body. It doesn't matter what you do in this physical being because this physical body is of no real spiritual consequence anyway. The goal is to find spiritual transcendence above this physical plane. And so you can do whatever you want, live, eat, drink, and be merry, do whatever you want in this lifetime, so long as spiritually you're focused on higher things. And and these two extremes, neither of them are healthy. You can see immediately that neither one of those seems healthy. Neither of those aligns with the word of Scripture. And yet the, the the growing foundations of Gnosticism were present even in the time of the New Testament writings. If you turn to Revelation chapter 2 and you read in Revelation chapter 2 the letter to the church in Ephesus, the word of Jesus spoken through John, the apostle John to the church in Ephesus, was that I've seen your good works, how you have resisted the work, how you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Well, the work of the Nicolaitans, again, is those, it's the early seeds of later Gnosticism. We read in John's letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, as John is writing to believers, likely centered in and around Ephesus, because we know historically that when Jerusalem fell to the Romans in AD 70, that John 
and some others relocated to the city of Ephesus. And so John became a central figure in the life of the church in Ephesus. And he writes to them in his letters. Now his letters likely come some 30 years or more after what we would date as the time of Paul writing this work to the Ephesian church. John writes to them about a separation that's taken place, about a group who have left the church. And he writes, they, they're not with you anymore. I'm, I'm transliterating this, but you can go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. And he writes that they left us because they weren't of us. They're not a part of your fellowship in your church anymore because they were never truly a part of the, the body anyway. And the fact that they left, the fact that they followed after this false teaching is proof, is evidence that they weren't believing in the things of God, but rather they were trusting in the words of men. And so when we begin to dig into some of these, these foundations, the background, and we see what's happening around the the church at Ephesus, the influences that are pressing upon the church. We find even in the, in the book of Ephesus itself that Paul is dealing with this. He's pointing to the physical material work of Christ because, see, the way that Gnosticism would, or what later became Gnosticism, the way that these philosophies would twist the gospel is to say that Jesus was not actually God in the flesh because why would God, why would immortal God, eternal God, ever stoop so low as to humble himself in a physical body, to be confined in a physical reality? No, Jesus wasn't truly the Christ, Jesus was just a representation of all that was good. Jesus pointed the way to God, they would argue, but he wasn't God in the flesh. And yet the problem with that is if Jesus, in fact, was not God in the flesh, then he was a liar. And his sacrifice, his death on the cross, could do nothing to forgive you of your sins. They would only, at best, pay for his own sins. But Paul writes to this, and he says, no, Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 20. And actually, even let me just pick up the last few words of verse 19 so that we set this in its context. Paul's writing, and he's talking about the greatness of the power of God toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So God's power has been revealed to us, and Paul is praying here that we would connect with that. That the eyes of our heart would be open to see this truth. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So this power that God did was worked in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What he's saying there is Jesus was who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. He conquered sin and death by descending in the earth, living a perfect life, and then in victory, ascending back into the heavenly places where he's seated now, the right hand of the throne of God, given, given victorious place of power over all of the enemies of God. That's the picture of the right hand of God there. These things are put under his feet, it says. And so all of this is pointing us back to the incarnate work of Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah. He was God in the flesh. And as we understand these truths, then it will shape the way that we respond as the body. Because the point of Ephesians 4, when we get into Ephesians chapter 4, is all about the body. 
It's all about how we as the body are to function together. Well, Ephesians 1 and the passage that we just looked at shows us that the body belongs to Christ. That we are his. We are his body. We are his bride, to use a word later used in Ephesians in chapter 5. And so we belong to him. The body belongs to him. And so as we understand what it means that there would be one body, as we looked at last week in chapter 4, verse 4, one body, one spirit, one hope of our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God the Father who is above all and in all and through all, it's important that we understand that this body that we belong to, that we have a call, we have a purpose according to God's grace. And so he's pointing here to the conquering work of Christ, which confirms his truth. So let's now jump back up to verse 7. And with all of that in mind, let's, let's look at how verses 7 and 8 instruct us, instruct not only our understanding of this text, but, but give us direction for how we should live in light of this. And so the first thing I, I want us to see, we're, we're essentially going to just take verse 7 and pick it apart together this morning and see three different, three different acts of grace. And so the first thing we see in verse 7 is the gift of grace. Look at these words, chapter 4, verse 7. Grace was given. Grace was given. Grace is a gift that is given to us. Now, grace in this sense in this context, is salvation. Salvation has been given to us by God. Oftentimes, when we think of salvation, we think mostly, if I can say it that way, we think primarily of salvation in terms of something that was removed from us. But what he's saying here is that salvation is not just about something removed from us, but something given to us. What was removed from us, of course, was our sin and, and, and the punishment that we deserved. But the reason that that sin could be removed, the reason that that punishment could be taken from us is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross in offering himself in our place. And because he offered himself in our place, because he gave himself for us, the punishment might be taken from us. The gift of grace is an act of God's doing through Jesus. That he has given himself to us, given himself for us. Think about the gifts that you receive, right? Everybody loves getting gifts. Now, for some, we understand, according to the five love languages, right, that some people, gift giving, gift receiving is their love language. Like for some people, that's just, that's what speaks love to them. That's what motivates them. But I don't know anyone that doesn't like to get a gift. I mean, gifts are great, right? We all love getting gifts, whether it be for maybe for a birthday or for, uh, or, or for you know, Christmas or, or something. I turned 40 this year. And for my 40th birthday, if you were here or if you remember, Rayleigh surprised me with like my dream guitar. It was an incredible gift. I mean, what an awesome thing to do for someone just because they're getting old, right? And, uh, make use of it now before I can't anymore. 40 is not all that bad, by the way. But, uh, but I mean, what an awesome gift that was. We think of all the great gifts we've been given in this life. And we understand, though, 
the greatest gift of all is what God gave to us when Jesus suffered and died on the cross. It's the gift of grace. Now, grace is meaning that God gave us something that we don't deserve. Jesus didn't die in your place because because you were worthy of that. Jesus didn't die on the cross because somehow you earned that favor. It was given to you as an act of grace, something you could never deserve, something you could never earn. And that's what makes it grace. So we see the gift of grace, the salvation made available to us in Jesus. But not only do we see the gift of grace, but we see the measure of grace. The measure of grace. Keep reading. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure. The measure. The measure of grace. I actually got out of order here, didn't I? Because I'm on point three. Let's keep going with it because it's, it, the measure of grace is this. That God measured it out. And what do we mean when we say that God measured grace to us? What we mean is that this wasn't done haphazardly. This wasn't done, this wasn't done accidentally. That this was done with great purpose. Think about when you cook. Now some people are good enough cooks that when they, when they cook, when they get all the ingredients together and they cook, they don't measure anything. They just begin mixing things together, right? You know what they would call that? If I were to do that, they would call that disaster because I'm not a great cook. I can read an ingredient list, and if it says put this much in a bowl and mix it with this much, of, I mean, I can do that, right? I can follow basic instructions, but I don't understand why things are interacting the way that they are, how flour and eggs and sugar and water or whatever else you put in becomes a cookie. Uh, I, I don't know how all of that works, but somehow it does, and it tastes good at the end of the day, right? My grandmother, when she would bake, when she would cook, she never measured anything. Because she had done it so many times that she would just get the food out and she just started mixing things together. And when it was all done, it was this incredible meal for us. When we talk about the measure of something, we're talking about the purpose, the intention, the design. And so when we speak of the measure of God's grace, think of it this way, the design of God's grace, the purpose of God's grace, the intention of God's grace. Again, it points us to the fact that this was done for a reason, with purpose, with intention. John writes in the Gospel of John that Jesus willingly gave his life, that no one took it from him, that he laid it down for us. John chapter 10, verse 12. He gave himself for us. He offered his life as a sacrifice. Do you understand that when we begin to speak of the measure of grace... It points us back to the fact that God has a purpose. Why did God save you? Because he has a purpose for you. According to the measure of his grace, according to the intention of his grace, the purpose of his grace, which was not just to save you and redeem you, but now that becoming a part of this body, he has a work for you to do. We're going to go on next week, and as we jump into verse 11 and begin studying, we see what, the, what that work is. That he's given us gifts and that these gifts have been, 
have been apportioned according to this measure of grace. And so he's appointed some to be prophets and, and some to be teachers and some to be pastors and some to be leaders. But all of this is done according to this measure of grace so that the body may be built up and the saints of God may be equipped for works of ministry. In other words, all of this fits together. The body, all the pieces of the body fit together according to the measure of his grace, the purpose of what God is doing in our lives. And that's so important for us to understand. Because when we, when we truly get this truth, then we realize that salvation was not just the end unto itself, but salvation, the gift of grace that was given to us, doesn't end with us. God didn't just save you so that he can take your sin away, and now you're good. Now you're set. You're good to go. All right, check. Another one. No, God saved you so that he might bring you into his body and give you gifts through the work of his Holy Spirit that now as a part of his body, you join him in that work of grace in proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming the kingdom of God to others. You have a purpose. You have a function in the body of Christ. You have a role to play. And that really is the point of the distribution of grace that I Skipped over a minute ago. Point two. Let's go back to that. The distribution of grace. Because what we see in the distribution of grace is that God in saving us, that he has given this gift to us, to every one of us. Not just some, not just a spiritual few, not just pastors and leaders, not just the Christian elite, deacons or other. No, every one of us, every believer Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord in salvation receives this distribution of grace that God's given it. Grace was given, it's a gift, to each one of us. There's the distribution. It's given to all of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So grace has been given as a gift, distributed to all of us according to the measure of God's purpose. When I think about this distribution of grace I think, so in my mind, I think along the lines of a, a sports analogy. That, that God has given each one of us a role to play. You know, on a sports team, everybody has a job. Everybody has a role to play. I coach soccer. I've coached all of my kids at soccer at some point along the way. And I'm coaching Nixon's team in soccer. We had our first game yesterday. And we've moved up this year, so it's kind of a new thing for us. We've moved up to U10 soccer with our team. And so uh, that means the field gets a little bit bigger. That means that we add some more players on the field. That means that we begin to spread things out. And so one of the things that we're coaching the kids with over and over and over again is you've got to stay in your spot. You've got to play in your position. If you're playing at center mid, you've got to stay in your lane, stay in your spot. The center mid doesn't need to be playing at the right back because that's not going to do anybody any good, right? That, this, that if you're playing at the forward position, you can't be back by our goal. You've got to be up in the forward position. So when the ball gets up there, you're ready to kick it in. And it's all about everybody understanding their position and their role. You know, really, that's the picture here of this distribution of grace. God didn't call all of us to be pastors and teachers. That wouldn't work, right? If we had a church full of people and we were all wanting to preach, that, that's, that's not... That's not the way that the body works, we understand that. But what's more than that, 
really when we, when we really begin to understand this distribution of grace, it's this beautiful picture of how God loves us and how he knows us and how each one of us have a role in the body that is tailor-made for you. When you think of buying clothes, you can buy clothes off the rack or you can have clothes that are custom tailored, right? And if you buy something off the rack, it may fit you okay. I mean, certain people have that kind of that body type that they just fit whatever comes off the rack. But certain people feel like, man, nothing ever looks good on me unless I get it tailored, unless I get it, unless I get it suited to my body, to my frame. Well, when we understand this distribution of grace, what we see is that God has tailor-made his plan for your life to you. And that his plan for you isn't like his plan for anybody else. His distribution of grace to you isn't quite like his distribution of grace to anybody else. That the measure of his grace, the purpose of what he has for you, isn't quite like the measure that he bestowed to anyone else. And I don't mean that God gives you more grace. That he, but what I mean is that the purpose that God has for you isn't quite like his purpose for anyone else. Because God has, in his loving kindness has a perfect plan for you, for your life. And when we really begin to understand that, man, I think it opens up our eyes to see the love of God in in a new way. That God loved me enough to lay down his life for me so that if I believe in him, I might receive the blessing of his gift through the work of the Holy Spirit, so that now I become a part of his kingdom, a part of his body, and I have a job to do. It's the gift of his grace, given by the distribution of his grace, so that we might work out the measure of his grace. And here's the beautiful picture of how all that comes together. He quotes, of course, from Psalm 68. We've already talked about that. But look at these words in Psalm 68, the way that he's quoted them here. When he ascended on high, again, that's speaking about the victorious work of God. Now, what's the victorious work of God in this sense? The cross, right? He conquered death and he ascended on high, proving his victory over sin and death, where he's seated at the right hand of God, Ephesians chapter 1. We saw that in verse 20, 21, 22. He ascended on high, and then catch this. He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. A host of captives. You know what I see when I I think about that? We are a ragtag bunch. We are former slaves who have been set free. We were enslaved to our sin, but by God's grace, we have been set free, freed from from our bondage and sin. And now... As former captives, we are led as a host of God. We're a ragtag bunch, but by the grace of God, we become an army for his kingdom. That's the point of Ephesians chapter 4. That God saved us, that he has measured out his grace according to his design and his purpose for every one of us. And as we connect with that, we become a part of this captive of hosts excuse me, host of captives. We become a part of this army, this, this uh, ragtag militia, if you will, of former slaves. And here's the really amazing thing. 
we already know the end from the beginning. We know that in the final estimation of things, our army, our side, wins. Because the one who leads us as our champion, as our victor, has already done the work in defeating the enemy. So when we see that he led a host of captives, that means that God has conquered everything that stands in our way, and now as his army, he's leading us. And then, and then, that he might fill all things, catching the very last phrase of verse 10 again. Why did he do all of this? Well, that he might fill all things. What did he fill? We, he, he filled the purpose of God in saving us from sin and redeeming us. He filled, he, he filled this prophecy of Old Testament Scripture, even Psalm 68, which can now be seen prophetically as pointing the way to Jesus. Think of all the Old Testament Scriptures that pointed toward the work of Christ. He fulfilled the purpose of God, the prophecies, the Old Testament Scripture, prophecies about the Messiah. And ultimately, he fulfilled the passion of the Christ. We refer to the work of Jesus often as his passion. What, was it, what does it mean, his passion? It means that, that his work in laying down his life for us on the cross shows us his love, shows us how much he loves us, that he became for us the propitiation for our sins, offering himself as the sacrifice in our place. Do you see the hand of God in all of this? What an amazing picture of his love for us. That he invites us in. That he welcomes us as former slaves. That he makes us a part of this, this army, this kingdom of God. He gives us a role. He gives us a job. He removes the stain of sin and gives us salvation as a gift to demonstrate his love for us. It's the gospel. It's the gospel which has the power to transform us. This morning as we think about this gospel, I'll go back to my, my opening statement. The only right response to this is that we would be all in, isn't it? Don't you see that the way that we respond to this truth is we humbly submit all that we have to him. We push all in, if you want to think of it that way, to answer the call of God. And this morning, as we move into a time of response, I want to challenge you that if there's never been a moment in your life when you have responded to the call of God by surrendering your life to him, by receiving salvation in Jesus through confessing him as Savior and Lord and asking forgiveness of your sin, that you would make today the day. You would make this the moment where you surrender your life to him, where you are all in with what God has for you. And if you have surrendered your life to him, but you're still wrestling with figuring out what he has for you, what he wants, his purpose, his direction for you, can I encourage you? Here would be my, my simple instruction. Take the next step of obedience. As some have said, do the next right thing. Honor him with the next step of obedience that God has set before you this morning. He's convicting you of sin. Confess it. Turn from it in repentance. If he's calling you to, to something, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a work in the church. Maybe it's to get off the sidelines and get in the game. We talked about everybody's got a spot. Everybody's got a position. We've got to stay in our position and do our work. Maybe God's calling you to get in the game. 
Stay in your position. Do your work. Stop standing on the sidelines. Whatever it may be today, that you would respond to him in obedience to this call. Would you pray with me now? God, we thank you that you saved us from sin, that you gave us this gift of grace. We thank you, God, that you have distributed this grace to us, each one of us, calling us, extending salvation to us, but so much more. And as we understand the measure of this grace, the purpose that you have for us, God, may we respond in humble obedience to you. Direct us, direct even our response now, God. We pray in your name. Amen. This morning as we stand...